0: This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Book Waves, Art Waves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. Science fiction and fantasy author and editor Terry Bisson died on January 10, 2024 at the age of 81. I interviewed Terry Bisson in the KPFA studios on January 2, 2013 following the paperback reprint of what would be his final novel any day now. And we go directly to the interview. Terry Bisson has several novels to his credit, several books to his credit, anywhere between six and eight novels, five short story collections, novelizations, three Johnny Quest novels, NASCAR young adult novels, live from death row about Mumia in 1995, Hugo Winner, Nebula winner swept all the science fiction awards in 1991 for a short story called Bears Discover Fire. This latest book, Terry Bisson, Any Day Now, struck me as an autobiography that takes place in an alternate universe, meaning that it's mostly – seems to be mostly your memoir if you lived in an earth that's not quite like this one. Is that pretty much –
1: That's pretty much it, yeah. You know, I was – Getting a little older, my career has kind of gone on for a while, and I felt it was time to write something a little bit autobiographical. So I set this in, uh, basically it's set in 1968, which as everybody knows, 1968 began in about 1956 and ended in about 1974. So yeah, it has autobiographical elements in it.
0: In this world, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King are not assassinated. But is Clay the main character? Is he pretty much you?
1: I don't know. I, I mean, a lot of it's based on um, the outlines of my own life, which is a kid from a small town. He goes to New York. He's turned on by the 60s. But it's, it's a pretty standard story. Uh, a lot of people went through that same kind of trajectory. Some of the incidents are particular to my own background and stuff. So it, it has elements of that, yeah.
0: So when you decided, okay, it's time to go back and write kind of a memoir, why did you choose to set it in this alternate world?
1: Basically what happened was like everybody else, I went through the sort of a whole shtick of the 60s, and uh, a couple of people said, oh, you should write about that. You were in the communes, you were involved with the left, you did this and that and the other. And then one day it struck me, well, I could make it turn out differently. So I decided, how would I have approached uh, like uh, 1968 and have it turn out differently? And so I took that on as a sort of a project.
0: It's in the background that it is in our world early on because James Dean lives. And that's in very, very early segment. At that point, I was kind of scratching my head a little bit. (laughs) But you were deliberate in making sure that that information was parcelled out so that it became a head scratcher until it wasn't.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I don't know how well that works, but that's I'm happy with it the way it did. Arthur C. Clarke dies, uh, James Dean lives. There's a few little items like that in there. I think the earliest one was when um, Hillary and Tensing were. Uh, were lost coming down after the first ascent of Everest. I don't expect everybody to get that. When I was a kid, I was like, that was 53. I would have been 11. I liked that stuff. And I remember I remember the story when it came out, you know. And so I sort of stuck that in there.
0: Clay's background growing up in this small town, going to college, pretty much.
1: I even used my own hometown, which is uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. It's a small town on the Ohio River. It's a small city. It's a town of about fifty thousand. You know, it's not a little country town.
0: When Clay leaves, goes off to college, and then goes to New York, he winds up hanging out with the Beats. Did you hang out with the Beats?
1: Not really. And in a way, I did all my life. One of the central figures in here is a guy who was sort of peripheral to the Beats, and he sort of spanned the difference between the. the ends of the beats and the beginnings of the hippies. So there's a scene in the book where I'm or Clay or whoever, it's it's like a 17-year-old kid. It's 1958, 57. These kids are sort of dissatisfied. They've been reading in Life magazine about the beat generation. It's this exciting kind of thing. And this guy shows up in town. He knew those people, and he'd been part of that thing. And so he took us on, and this really happened. I just was at his memorial service in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, about three weeks ago. His name was Peter L. Douthit. He called himself Peter Rabbit, and he was a stone, staunch, old-school hippie. He had hung out with the Beats, although he'd been a little younger at that point than them, and then he started uh, some of the communes in the Southwest. He started Drop City and Libre, and he ran a thing in Taos for years called the Taos Poetry Circus. Which was sort of slam poetry. it was it was like the New Yorkcan thing. He was a lovely guy. I knew him all my life. He was like a father to me and and I loved him very much. He died at seventy five about uh, back in October.
0: And this character in the book is pretty much him.
1: Yeah. I meet up with this guy in my hometown. Then I never see him again for a long time. and uh, and then I run into him. I'm in New York. I've been there about five or six years. It's the late 60s. And this also really happened. Around the time of the Whole Earth Catalog, these guys were touring the country. They're raising money. They're sort of doing a publicity thing. And he shows up. And he basically recruited uh, me and a bunch of people I was hanging out with to drop everything in New York, leave our
0: plow in the furrow, and head out to the southwest. And that's what we did. And that's what your character does. Uh, Was there any point as you were writing the book any day now, Terry Bisson, was there any point where you're going, you know, gee, should I keep it science fiction? Or were you always intending to take it in that direction?
1: I always tend to go off in that direction. Yeah, I had a plan. I swiped the plan. The central plan of the book is really swiped from Philip Roth, from the uh, plot against America. Where remember where Lindbergh walks in and steals the nomination, okay? So the the central thing in this is where uh, Robert Kennedy does this.
0: Fire on the Mountain is about if John Brown's raid on Harper Ferry had succeeded, so you've actually traveled that road before.
1: Yeah, that was a much more explicit alternate history. It was focused on Brown, and that came out of my political work in those days and just thinking about John Brown and all that. So that was a a very different thing.
0: On your website, there's a quote by a Dr. Ed McKnight from 1994 talking about fire on the mountain. And he writes, alternate histories are dominated by dystopia. These show how much worse the world could be than it is and implicitly support the status quo. And then he notes that Fire on the Mountain is the exception. However, Any Day Now is not. Any Day Now becomes dystopian.
1: Yeah, it's somewhat dystopian.
0: The United States falls apart. Is that
1: such a bad thing?
0: Well, yeah, I think it's a bad thing.
1: Well, maybe. I don't know. Fire on the Mountain is considered a utopian novel. And I tend to write happy endings. And uh, I think this book actually has a happy ending. But, yeah, it's definitely more dystopian than um,
0: than Fire on the Mountain. Would you agree with McKnight's statement that, in some sense, these dystopians do support the status quo?
1: Yeah. Fire on the Mountain was written, hell, 20, 20 years ago, quite a while ago, when I was a, a political activist in the New Left. The central thesis of Fire on the Mountain is that there's no U.S. imperialism, that replaces the British Empire. So the world is a better place. So I don't have quite that worked out a thesis in this. But alternate history, at the time I wrote Fire on the Mountain, what McKnight said was very true. Alternate history was not as common then as it is now. Now there's 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 a whole award called the Sidewise Award for Alternate History. There's a million books about, you know, they have AK-47s in the Civil War and it's become a, almost a subgenre in itself. At the time I wrote Fire on the Mountain, there were only like three or four major ones. There'd be Pavan, uh, there'd be a couple about the Civil War.
0: Man in the High Castle. Man in the High
1: Castle was, right. of course, the central. Right. So anyway, when I wrote that, it was, like I say, it was uh, not quite as common. But mine was definitely a utopian take. Because I was a firm enlisted member of the new left at at that point. Have your
0: politics changed that much since then?
1: No, not particularly. (laughs) But I I no longer think that national liberation and our colonialism is the road to socialism completely, which was sort of the standard, you know, two, three Vietnams thing. But no, they haven't really changed.
0: Any day now, Terry Bisson, okay, 1968, you make this change – How much did you plan out where the U.S. was going in terms of Clay's life? Or was that just kind of background that kind of filled in at various times where you mostly focused on the foreground, which is the story of Clay?
1: I knew it was going to involve big political changes, a fracturing of the U.S., and an intervention by the United Nations. And I also knew, because it's sort of the way I work that you weren't going to see it from the inside. You were going to look at it from the outside, which is sort of how the uh, we were talking about the John Brown book. Um, in the John Brown book, John Brown's not really there. You know, it's how his life affects other people. So I sort of knew all that.
0: Yeah. But the specifics of how the world splintered came along as you're writing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let's go back to the real Terry Bisson here. Okay, so you were in New York, as Clay was in the book. Were you thinking of being a writer back in those days? I mean, your first novel was published in 81, which is a bit later.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I went to New York in, it um, must have been 65 or something like that. I had graduated from college. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, And I wrote a novel, and I'd I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd kind of given up. I had a couple of kids. I had a job as a social worker and, you know, the yada, yada, the whole thing. And I wrote this book, and I got an agent who took me on, and I sent the book off. And I was very optimistic, and I thought, this is going to be – I had the same agent as uh, Salinger and as uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is a big deal, but the book was too short. It never got published. I moved to New York anyway. I started writing. I was trying to write another novel. I got jobs in publishing. I worked for, for comics. I worked for a Western magazine. So I was a hack writer. I was doing it. And I discovered I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a writer, but I failed. I didn't. I wanted to be one of these guys like Jay McInerney or Robert Stone or whoever, you know, that would get invited to all the parties. I wanted to be that kind of guy.
0: (laughs) So when you were working for a Western magazine, what exactly did you do?
1: You know, I'd write stories. By 68, I was editing three very lowball pulpy magazines, romance magazines, astrology magazines, Westerns. one, a comic magazine, uh, and I did some writing for him, but mostly I was an
0: editor at that point. Uh, were, you, uh, were you reading science fiction? Were you thinking science fiction at all?
1: Actually, I wasn't. I had kind of lost... Um, you've, I'm sure, had this experience. You you talk to people about science fiction, and everybody says, oh, I loved it. You know, I, it was a big deal to me. It was Asimov, it was right. Clark, it right. was Heinlein. That stuff was very important to me as a, as a teenager. And uh, it introduced me to literature. But by the time the 60s came along, I was more interested in the beats, in a literary rather than genre kind of stuff. I had lost touch with the field entirely. I didn't keep up with the newer stuff in it. And along with a lot of people, if you think about it, science fiction, it's like if, you, if rock and roll, if after Chuck Berry and Elvis and uh, Buddy Holly... There hadn't been a second generation. And that kind of failed in science fiction. The, the people that were my contemporaries, like Samuel Delaney or um, Tom Dish or uh, Norman Spinrad, all, I didn't know these people. I know them now, but I missed out on all that. If I'd known it, I might have thought of myself yeah as a science fiction writer, but I didn't. I was trying to get into the mainstream
0: so let's let's talk a little about the seventies. Okay, you're still in New York, or, or by that point had you gone to the communes? No, I left around sixty nine or seventy. Okay, so when you were in the communes, were you doing any writing or?
1: No, in New York, I was working on this novel, and the longer I worked on it, the shorter it got. It was like uh, I was blocked in a big way because all I had was ambition. You know, I didn't. It was it was, it was weird. Anyway, when Rabbit and all these hippies swept into town, they sort of gathered us up like crumbs after a meal and took us with them. I was so relieved to quit thinking of myself as a writer to quit writing the whole ball of wax. I gave it up I became uh, moved to communes, worked on cars, became an auto mechanic, lived on a commune in Kentucky, a faux hillbilly tractor and car mechanic, and never, ever thought
0: about writing again for almost 10 years. Okay, so you've been doing all of that. How did you get back into writing? Were your first work short stories, or did you go right into the novel?
1: Right into the novel, late 70s, a novel called World Maker. I got bored with being a country hippie, my wife and I both, and everything, you know, we've been doing this stuff for quite a while. I'd always been sympathetic to the left, but I was never really that much of an activist. And along about 75, when the uh, weather fell apart, they published uh, Prairie Fire. They published this magazine called Osawatomie. They They were trying to organize sort of mass above-ground groups uh, on their politics. Well, we fell into that category. We were reading this stuff. We thought, oh, this is exciting. We should do this. We should quit raising tobacco and pigs and all that kind of stuff moved to new york so i moved to new york with our family we had three kids and uh, we joined up uh with a with sort of the what would you call it the the remnants of the wo and the the new left it was the anti-klan work puerto rican independence work i was working then as a uh in a taxi garage as a taxi mechanic but I couldn't make ends meet, and I had some old contacts from when I'd been a hack writer. And they'd stayed in New York, and one of them was now running a small paperback publisher. She got me to write and copy for her, so I could make more money writing cover copy than working in the garage.
0: What was the company?
1: Berkeley Books. Yeah, it was a, a mainstream sure. paperback. It was a fun time to be in publishing, too. It was uh, It was when women were getting jobs in publishing for the first time. And I was good at it. So I, I, just, I had a regular job, and, off and I'm working there. I was writing all the cover copy for the science fiction line. And do you know David Hartwell? You probably do. Of
0: course, for 30 years. Yeah. Jesus.
1: Hartwell came to me, and he said, uh, you've got the, the diction down, the, the sound of this stuff. He had a whole line of science fiction, and they were, doing, they were republishing More, Michael Moorcock. And I wrote all the cover copy on the Moorcock books. So Hartwell said, if you give me a, a, a two or three page outline, says you got the language down. Everybody knows the story. there's a magic sword, you're, you know there's a quest, there's all this kind of stuff. And uh, give me an outline and I'll give you 1500, bucks and you can write a novel. And I said I said, basically get the behind me, Satan. that that was I still thought of myself as wanting to be a literary type dude. Well, Hartwell kept pushing me, and I so I did it, and I wrote this book. I, it's a little fantasy. It's a basically an imitation Moorcock fantasy. It broke a dam in me. It all of a sudden I realized you didn't have to be Scott Fitzgerald or James Joyce. You could write. You could write something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I should have known that anyway. I'd been a hack writer before, so I wrote this thing, got a little bit of money, and then uh, Hartwell said, "Well." That did okay. Didn't do great, but it did okay. Said now write the one, write the book you want to write. So I did, and I wrote a little book called Talking Man. Wizard was this hillbilly. It was really my life in Kentucky. And, long you know, out of print now. Oh, it's been long out of print. Long out of print. I'm actually gonna put it back into an ebook edition with somebody, and I'm working on it right now. So anyway, I did that book, and I got a, a nomination for a World Fantasy Award. Which of course Hartwell was completely corruptly involved with. It it didn't make a lot of money or made a huge splash, but it got me a lot of respect among my colleagues. So all of a sudden I was in this club of science fiction writers.
0: And you're scratching your head going, Wow.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I was never I was never a part of fandom or any of that kind of stuff. But all of a sudden, I'm meeting these other writers like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and Paul Park and uh, Ellen Detlow and the whole crowd. And I realized this is a very literary bunch of people. This is really what I always wanted. So I became a science fiction writer. I never wrote anything else.
0: Well, Terry Bisson, you're still at that point still on the new left. Were you thinking in terms of having political content in your books or were you just thinking, hey, I'm a science fiction writer?
1: No political content at all. At that why not? Point. I don't know. It was I, it was two different things. At that point, I was full-time communist organizer. Fire on the Mountain was definitely political content. But right. after I did Talking Man, which I got $1,500 for, then Ellen Datlow, who was then with Omni Magazine. Everybody remembers Omni, right? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, why don't you write a short story? And I said, okay. So I wrote her a short story. I got $1,800
0: for a short story. (laughs) How do you feel about writing the short stories compared to the novels? Because you suddenly, within a year or two, had a reputation as a great short story writer. Yeah,
1: it was easier for me, and I was pretty good at it. Somehow, you know, they're very different. I I still have a hard time with novels. Uh, They're difficult, you know. But short stories were easy for me, and I did have a, a kind of a knack for it.
0: And at this point, suddenly, you're a writer, and you're writing these novels. You're still what they call midlist, but you're doing, you're making a living at it.
1: There was a midlist then. I would do a novel. Uh, you know, I'd do an outline for Tor or Arbor House or somewhere, and I'd get ten, fifteen, twenty grand. You know, I mean, those days are long gone. They're long gone. And I was never up. That was when they would take what you call a midlist writer like me and carry me along and figure, well, someday the backlist will be something.
0: He meant, you know. It's all over. Terry Bisson, you also at that point began getting into writing adaptations of films. How did that come about?
1: Well, were what's called novelization. So there's a movie coming out. The movie company sells the right to the novelization to a publisher like Pocket Books or somebody like that. They hire a hack to take the script and novelize it. You know, basically, it's the same story, same thing. And you're
0: getting a flat rate.
1: Yeah, you have, sometimes you can negotiate a little bit of a royalty, but not much. Yeah, it's a totally a hack job. You can do it in, um, I don't know, a month and a half, two months. I did a lot of those because I was in New York. I had a background in publishing. I knew, by that point, I knew people in science fiction. The first one I did was for Bill Gibson's Johnny Mnemonic. I had actually never done one of these, and I probably had a sort of a... Um, scornful attitude toward him, because there's no originality in him whatsoever. Johnny DeMonic, I thought, was going to be a big deal. Bill Gibson was the biggest name in science fiction. And uh, here's this thing, and they offered me, you know, I think it was like 20 grand for doing a novelization. And I thought, what the heck? And Gibson actually helped me. Although we're not close friends or anything, he suggested me as the person he wanted to do it, and so I got to do it. And it was kind of fun, and it was easy to do.
0: Well, when you're doing something like that, are you trying to emulate Gibson's style?
1: There's no style. There's just scenes, and there's dialogue. They don't really care who does it. Your name doesn't add much to it. But the funny thing about the Gibson thing was I learned something then. I learned that even the biggest name in science fiction doesn't mean anything when it comes to movies. You know, who we think of as the the grand uh, avatars of the field hardly exist in when it comes to movies. So anyway, I did that one, and then I would just get them. I agent, somebody would call. They've got this books coming out. They need it in two and a half months. They would call me, and over the years, the price kept dropping, because the novelizations don't really make any money, you know. So they kind of quit doing it. But the price kept going down. I remember getting twenty grand, and then it would go down to. Fifteen, then it'd be ten. The last one I did was thirty-five hundred (laughs) dollars.
0: You You did a, you did a couple of ones for Lucasfilm though, too, right?
1: That was a different deal. Yeah, that was where you actually had to make up the story. Scholastic had the deal with Lucasfilm. Yeah, I did the Boba Fett books, and then you make money for that. And Boba Fett, I had a contract to do three, I only did two of them. I think they could sense that I didn't really like Star Wars or Boba Fett or anything, So,
0: but that worked out okay. Well, Terry Bisson, you also wrote young adult novels for NASCAR.
1: Yeah, well, that's a whole other sad story. I was working with John Silbersack.
0: Silbersack's your agent now, right?
1: Yeah, he is. He yeah. is. And And uh, at that point, he was running HarperCollins' science fiction line, and he was also, they they were doing some NASCAR books. So John had this idea, let's do some YA NASCAR books. And I think I did seven or eight of them. And they were they were fun. They were pretty authentic. They were kid stuff, but they were pretty authentic. And it's about these kids that travel with their uncle, who's a NASCAR driver. But the the end of and I figured this is my ticket. These things are going to make big bucks. This is when NASCAR was in the process of we're not going to be a redneck hillbilly. We're going to become the NBA. We're going to be the NFL, right. and they and as we all so know, they hire
0: a communist organizer. then. <laughs>
1: they didn't know that, so they. Um, but um, it looked like this this would s- sell a lot of books and make a right. lot of money. In fact, it didn't because they didn't know how to market the books. They didn't know where to put them. It's always been a disappointment to me because it could have been a little, but they didn't at that point NASCAR. Um, they were also so, like the characters in my book would chew tobacco. Well, they'd take that out. They, it was too hillbilly. You know, they would, uh, uh, but they didn't change them that much. The main thing was they didn't know how to market them, and then NASCAR never really made it into the, the NBA big time anyway. So, yeah, but I did a lot of those books.
0: And while you were doing that, you were still writing your serious science yeah. fiction. And at yeah. this point, at this point, it sounds as if, You'd almost bifurcated. On the one hand, there was Terry Bisson, the hack, writing under God knows what names, and on the other hand, there was Terry Bisson developing himself into a quality writer who wrote science fiction.
1: Exactly, uh, that's a flattering way to put it, but it's true. I used to call it morning work and afternoon work, and I couldn't make a. I couldn't really make a living on the morning work. Uh, you know, I'd make about half my living on that, and then the afternoon work was. Uh, Gee, there was, you know, there was the NASCAR books. There was the, you know, the novelization. There was always something coming along because I was living in New York then. I was a known quantity, and there was a lot of work.
0: So suddenly the phone would ring, and someone would go, hey, we want you to do this, yeah. that, or the other thing. Yeah, I just like that. You also wrote, and they weren't used, adaptations of for classics illustrated?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that was afternoon work, too. That was fun. <laughs> Seriously, the thing about a... a I've always been, um, I had a life in literature, which was what I wanted, you know. You know, everybody wants to be famous and yada, yada. But really, fundamentally, what I wanted was to make a living as a writer. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And the, I never resented the hack work. It, it's um, it's fun to do. And, you know, you do it as quality as you can. And the, the classics, it's another thing that didn't work. Somebody bought... Some I've forgotten the name of the company, but you remember the old classics, the old. Oh, sure. They had never done Jane Austen. Anyway, I got the job of doing. I think I did Emma and Pride and Prejudice, and uh, but they never got published. But I got I got paid for it, and it was fun. Jane Austen works in comics perfectly because it's these beautiful scenes with this great dialogue and they were they were good but the company went out of business
0: so they never got published well you you did this and you I guess you're still continuing to do this how did you become involved with Mumia through my political
1: work through uh, working with really people the old weather people and oh they were my age but I was actually older than them. But anyway, um, I had a, a good friend, Alan Berkman, who was one of the leaders of uh, May 19th, which is this communist organization I was working with. And Alan was in jail. We were involved in some illegal stuff, or they were. Anyway, Alan met Mumia in jail in Philadelphia. And this is right after he first got convicted. Uh, He was back for a hearing or something like that. So he was in population. And they became friends and were talking and stuff. And it turns out that Mumia liked science fiction. And so Alan put us in touch. So I just started visiting Mumia and talking to him. And and we became friends. It happened to be at the time when Mumia was not an international celebrity in that, that way. He met people. He was
0: meeting people in jail. And live from death row?
1: he wanted to do a book and I kind of pushed him to do it. I said, you know, and so I kind of edited and put that book together for him. And I came up with the title, <laughs> which everybody knows where that's swiped from. Right. And then I put the book together. So anyway, I was also doing some hack work with a, a publisher, um, a guy named, uh, who was a uh, Eritrean who had a, a publishing company called Red Sea Press and it was very political and I edited a lot of books for him. And I talked him into doing Mumia's book because Mumia was, you know, it was a nice little book about this and that and the other. And then I get this call from this woman and the book was scheduled, it was ready to go. This woman, uh, Noel Hanrahan, who I'd never met, knew nothing about. And she excoriated me up and down. She says, you're giving this book to a small press. He says, you don't understand. Mumia is an international phenomenon. He's a big deal. You're destroying this. I don't know what the hell you're thinking about. This is really stupid. And my reaction was, Noel, you don't know how publishing works. This guy is not going to be go to the mainstream. It's not going to happen. She says, you, he needs an agent. He doesn't even have an agent. And I said, and you don't know agents. It takes agents six months to even open a letter. It, you know, it's never going to happen. So anyway, she gives me all this crap. And finally, I gave in. I said, all right, I'll send. There was one lefty agent in New York, a woman named Frances Golden, who was an old commie who lived down on the Lower East Side. I sent her the manuscript just to to be able to tell this Noel person that I was not trying to sabotage Mumia, She calls me that weekend and she says, who is this guy? You sent this book? And and I said, yeah. And she says, "She says I want to see, I want to represent this book. I'm going to send it to every publisher in New York. I have to send it Monday morning. It's, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm sitting around. She says, come down to my office. You've got to help me. Xerox, we're going to mail it out. And she puts me to work. We go down, send it out. Turns out, Francis was a very leftist but extremely respected agent. She was the agent for Barbara Kingsolver at that point and also Dorothy Allison. People returned her calls. She sends the book out. In a week, she's got a $30,000 advance for this (laughs) book. And she still today is Mumia's biggest. uh, Francis was my agent after that for years. She's very old now. She's about 90.
0: So Noelle was right.
1: No, 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 I was absolutely right. I was totally wrong. I'd been in publishing so long, I was cynical about it and yada, yada. So she was right. And um, after, since then, Mumia's published, uh, what, eight or ten books. And um, that was the only one that got a mainstream publisher, I think. Yeah, that
0: was the experience. Terry Bisson, you've had a, a, so many bizarre elements of your career. You wrote a sequel to Canticle for Leibowitz.
1: Yeah, at this point, I was writing short stories for Playboy. A short story for Playboy gets you more than a novel. Right. You know, and I was good friends with Alice Turner, who's the uh, editor at Playboy, who was then. She was having lunch with Don Congdon, who was uh, the agent for Walter Miller Jr., who wrote Canical for Leibowitz. And Congdon said, uh, Walter is, he's old, he's depressed, he's drunk all the time. He can't, he's got this book, the sequel, he's been working on for 20 years, and he can't finish it. And I finally talked him into getting somebody in to help him with it. Alice, bless her heart, says, I know just the guy. And so they call, he calls me up. Uh I go into his office. He gives me this manuscript, which is six hundred pages long and that and I've been a writer long enough to know when you're blocked. you know what it's like. Well, it wasn't like that; it was great, it was great, and it was uh all was done except the end, which is maybe fifty to seventy five pages. I got the job there was some negotiating and stuff, but it was it was a big money book, it was probably worth seven hundred thousand dollars. But he had basically taken too long on it, and yada, yada. But anyway, so they accepted the whole thing. I did the book without ever meeting Miller. Miller's thing was, I've never heard of this guy, but any idiot with a sense of humor can finish this book, was his line. So I was in the ballpark and uh, finished the book. The end of that story is, I thought it was going to be a big deal because Canticle was such a big deal. Well, Miller killed himself. As soon as I had finished the book, and he was sure that his family was going to get the money. He sat in a lawn chair in front of his house. Put a he was, uh, and I never got to meet the guy. But I grew to love the guy from the from the book. But and in the book, I felt like should have gotten a lot of attention from the science fiction field. He should have gotten a. Uh, Hugo and all this kind of stuff. None of that happened. The book didn't make much of a splash, although it's a it's a very fine book. What's the name of it? It's called uh, Saint Leibowitz and the Wild Horse Woman.
0: And is Miller listed as the author then?
1: Oh yeah, I'm not even listed. Except there's thanks to me for editorial or something. You know, I just did a a hundred pages on it, and that was one where you do imitate the style because I right. you know and that was
0: uh, it was a great experience. Terry Bisson. It sounds as if, because I have actually other things that, I mean, there's more. <laughs> Forty years of hack work generates a lot of material. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you also had a little bit of, of work with Hollywood. Uh, you wrote a screenplay about Paul Robeson.
1: I did. I also wrote a screenplay about Mumia. Never got made. I've written several screenplays. The first one was the Mumia. Well, there was a young guy named Josh Leonard who I'm still friends with in Hollywood, who's made a couple of films since, but he couldn't get it made. And then uh, another producer, a guy who came from New Zealand, actually, wanted to do a Paul Robeson film and got me to do that. And we did a lot of work on it. Uh, Mumia and Paul Robeson, in a way, are both, they're too toxic. Nobody will touch them.
0: Really? Yeah. What is The Singing biologist?
1: Oh, that's a guy who was a lefty um, a jazz musician. He did a movie, a musical, and I didn't have much to do with it except I knew him through left politics. he called me in and to help him cut the movie because it was too long. And so the two of us that was the most fun I've ever had. We sat there and I thought it was a great little movie and we would say we could cut it here we can cut it there. and so he gave me credit on it, although I really. Didn't have much to do with it. And then he had a showing of it, and I invited all my family and friends, and they never forgave me. They all hated it. Everybody (laughs) hated the movie. I still think it's a great movie.
0: Any Day Now came out, and depending upon publishing dates, will either have just come out in paperback or will be coming out in paperback from Overlook. Uh, You're working on some other projects. You're editing something for PM Press called Outspoken Authors. What's that?
1: Uh, It's a bunch of chapbooks. They're about 100 to 110 pages. TM got hold of me. I don't know if you know Ramsey or these people, but uh, he contacted me because he wanted to expand into science fiction a little bit, and I sort of knew some people. The idea of these books is you've got a short story, You've got a um a long nonfiction piece um and an interview which I conduct and it's all from somebody who's sort of has leftist politics and something to say. And so we we try to get and we do, we get big stars. We got Moorcock, we got Kim Stanley Robinson, we got Ursula Le Guin. I just this morning uh sent uh, off the stuff. We have uh, Karen Joy Fowler who's uh big deal in science fiction. So these things are lots of fun.
0: Are you working on another book now?
1: I haven't even done a short story in a year, so I don't know. Maybe I'm um, just editing and winding down, but I I don't have anything. Um, I have two movie projects, and I'm doing a comic, supposedly a comic version of *Canonical* for Leibowitz, which if it gets done, it'll be a lot of fun. But you know these kind of things. You're always waiting on somebody else. You, you know a novel you can write yourself or a short story, but a a comic book or a movie is a collaborative thing, and so you you're always waiting.
0: Do you think it's possible for somebody who's much younger than you, just starting out, to create a career like you've done, which is write the serious stuff in the morning and do the hack work in the afternoon?
1: I wish it was. Like I say, I feel very. It's been a lot of fun. But I think today it's difficult. I, I know young, talented young science fiction writers or writers and they all have to get an MFA and a teaching job if you do a novel, unless you're really a big deal. I mean, there are people like, you know, Michael Chabon. But the general mid there's no mid-list anymore. There's no place for a guy like me. A guy like me has to go uh, teach at next exit community college to make enough money to to write novels. And for the novels you'll get you publish them yourself or e-publish or maybe you get uh forty five hundred dollars if you're lucky Uh, so i think i just happened to i got lucky and came along at the right time because i'm not any different from any of them i just there was a lot of work and it was fun to do
0: you've been listening to an interview with the late science fiction and fantasy author terry bisson who died on january 10 2024 at the age of 81 It was recorded January 2nd, 2013 in the KPFA studios following the paperback reprint of what would be his last novel any day now. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky Radio Shows on Facebook. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or Richard at kpfa.org. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky.